Every September in the cities of Toronto, Halifax, Lethbridge, Saskatoon, and Kitchener, Word on the Street unites the country in a national celebration of literacy and the written word. Over 200,000 people visit every year, and we have two of them. You're not really visiting, you're performing at this year's Word on the Street. Uh, Help me welcome Michael Barkley. He's the author of The Never-Ending Present. That's a, a book all about the tragically hip. Interesting stuff, though, because it's not just a, hey, they started here and then they ended up here. Uh, there's there's much more to it than that, and we'll get to that in just a second. And Nicholas Jennings is here. Uh, Lightfoot is his new book that is pre- uh, just about as self-explanatory as you get in Canada. Uh, he's like Cher. He just needs one name. A book all about Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, the two of you will be at Word on the Street on Sunday uh, talking about your books, talking about, I guess, the state of Canadian music and maybe how Gordon Lightfoot influenced the tragically hip. Do you think that'll come up? Most Absolutely. Likely. Sure. Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Michael, I'll start with you talking about the, the tragically hip. Uh, this isn't just simply a book about one of Canada's most beloved bands. Uh, this is a book that tries to place them in context uh, to Canada, to um, to not only the music industry, but really the sort of cultural fabric that makes up the country. It would have been easier probably to write a book. Shorter. Uh, yeah, and shorter. Tell me a little bit about uh, what people can expect from the never-ending present. One thing that really struck me during that last tour that uh, in 2016 was, um, and researching the book was, in how many threads they have running through all kinds of uh, subjects and areas of Canadian culture. So, you know, I'd forgotten that, for example, uh, there's a link to uh, Adam McGoin, his use of the song Courage and the Sweet Hereafter that Sarah Polly sings in that. Sarah Polly years later, was an executive producer on the Secret Path Project, you know, and then uh, Tessa Virtue, Scott uh, Moyer, um, uh, skated to long time running at the Olympics. And then uh, Rob Baker's father uh, was a figure skating judge. His mother was an American figure cha- skating champion. Uh, uh, Kurt Browning used to skate to a tragically hip uh, instrumental, uh, you know, and of course there's a deep connection with hockey there. And then, um, and then generations of musicians. So, uh, you know, people uh, their own age uh, or slightly older, everyone from like, you know, Rush to their peers in Blue Rodeo or the Reostatics to up through to like Sam Roberts and Feist to uh, f up to the Arkells. Like it just, the story of the tragically hip weaves through so many generations in different areas of Canadian culture. And I really wanted to explore that and also to place them outside the, the, the straitjacket of Canadianism, which mm-hmm. I think was really prevalent that last year. And I wanted to talk to them about, about a rock and roll band in an international context and what made Gord Downey different from Lou Reed or Patti Smith or Joni Mitchell or uh, all these other um, very lyrical writers uh, in in rock and roll history. And I thought that was important. We'll, we'll expand on that in just a little bit. Nick, I have to tell you, or Nicholas, I, I didn't love Gordon Lightfoot when I was a kid. When he was having his heyday, when he was having his biggest hits, I wanted something with electric guitars in it, not Gordon Lightfoot. Now that I've gotten older and probably wiser <laughs> a little bit, I've come to appreciate how beautiful those songs are, the songwriting craft, and how for a lot of people, and not just of a generation, but of, you know, probably one before me and and a couple after me, uh, think of Gordon Lightfoot as kind of the sound of Canada in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, he really, I think Gordon Lightfoot, there's, there, there's a number of icons in this country who have come to represent the country, and I think Gordon Lightfoot's definitely one of those. Um, 
<clears throat> but I, I was interested in, in uh, I, I was surprised actually that there hadn't been a book that had really done him justice. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there had been one book done previously on him that uh, I, I don't even consider it a legitimate biography, not to cast aspersions on a fellow writer and he's no longer with us, mm-hmm. but Maynard Collins um, did a biography on Gordon Lightfoot that really set out to sort of, I think, tear down the man. It was almost like a little bit like the Albert Goldman mm. book on John Lennon. Right, right. It's and, sort of that tall poppy thing. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, uh, Maynard Collins, I don't know what his agenda was, but he's a playwright. He was a playwright, I should say. He, 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 he's, I think, best known for the, the, the musical, uh, Hank Williams, The Show He Never Gave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he set out to, to basically play up all of Gordon Lightfoot's personal uh, faults, his mm-hmm. alcoholism, his womanizing, there was very scant attention paid to his songwriting, his music, how he influenced Canadian music. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, un, unnamed sources and innuendo about, you know, you know, his, his uh, those, those foibles, I suppose, those, those you know, those, those imperfections. And I thought, well, what's, what service does that do mm-hmm. to telling the story of Canadian music or one of Canada's greatest Singer-songwriter. Well, probably none, except that it's probably a little sexier if yeah. you're trying to sell the book. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and you know, I, I have no idea how well that book sold, but I'm happy to say that my book sold extremely well. And I think, you know, people should understand I undertook this book with Gordon Lightfoot's cooperation. Right. But he did not have so final, it's not an authorized. It's biography. not an authorized biography. He well, did not have he. To his credit, he did not ask for, uh, and nor did, was he given. Um, you know, final approval on the content. He never saw the manuscript before the book came out. And you were given kind of unprecedented access to him because he has not given that many interviews, certainly not in the last decade or so. I think it was probably, you know, a, a bit mouthier years ago uh, with the press, but but that that stopped. In his drinking days. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. In, in his drinking days, he, he, he did tend to sort of, you know, open up a little bit more. And I, I, I point this out in the book. Interestingly, he opened up most uh, uh, to female interviewers. And I don't know what that says about yeah. Gordon Lightfoot, but, you know, the I, I poured through every major interview he ever gave uh, in Canada or the U.S. or from, from anywhere in the world. And typically, the most illuminating interviews he gave were with, with women. And for each of you, when you're researching these these big books on pop culture history, no matter who the, the topic is, how much credence do you give interviews like that? Because I have come to learn in the work that I do, which is often the one doing the interviews, but I've written a couple of books or a few books where I've had to, to go back and look at that. And, you know, if you see a question that was asked in 1970 and then asked again in 1978, the answers could be completely different. And I often find that when I am interviewing celebrities, in the heat of the moment, they'll say kind of whatever they need to say to make the interview uh, more lively, more whatever. You don't I, – I don't see celebrity interviews often as being, you know, the beacon of truth that people might expect them to be. So how do you – how do you – forward yourself through that? I don't think a lot of those interviews are even particularly revelatory. Mm. Um, I think unless you're engaging in a project like this and you're really walking through key points in the career and and touching on themes and diving into the work itself and the creation of the work, I mean, everyone at this table knows you don't really get to do that when you have a 15-minute quick phoner with somebody or, you know, 15 like, minutes. What <laughs> world are you living in? <laughs> Music world, I guess in film you get five, but you know, you don't get a lot of depth there. Yeah. And and when you do go back and, and 
uh, do that research. I mean, uh, Nick's research is in a different time period where magazine articles were much longer and there probably was a lot more in-depth stuff. By the time my subject comes around, things are much shorter. Very few people are writing long, in-depth things uh, with the exception of Nick and McLean's did a big story in 2000 on the tragically hit. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, those aren't really the best sources. The best source is to go to people who are actually there um, and uh, and get stories uh, from those people now. A lot of in-the-moment stuff isn't that revelatory. And also, some of the most interesting things I found were interviews uh, in my chapter about hockey. Um, uh, the sportscaster Bob McKenzie wrote a book called Hockey Confidential, and he had an amazing interview with Gordowney talking about it, playing in the minor leagues and, and his whole very personal family relationship uh, to hockey. And uh, when I was writing about creating the records or, or how each of the five guys in the band are as musicians, um, you know, the magazine Canadian Musician was a great resource because mm -hmm. that's like one of the only places where they really get in-depth about what really inspired them to play, how much Johnny Fay loved Stuart Copeland and could identify different bootlegs from different, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and and Canadian Musician would interview uh, acts at all levels of fame as well. So you could find early, early stuff when no one else was talking to them probably. Yeah. So I feel like like the stuff you would find in, in the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail or, or, or even McLean's, those – wouldn't really offer you much you didn't already know, right. those kind of quotes. And so you're much better to call the person who produced that record 25 years ago and say, tell me about this. And then you get the story from, from there. And you uh, come at this from two different ways. You were uh, a magazine columnist for a very long time, Fred McLean's for 20 or more years. Uh, and, and then you write these big, thick books about music as well. Uh, so is there a difference in the way that you would, well, obviously there is, but what is the difference, the way that you would approach a magazine article and versus, you know, the ideas, obviously they're bigger when you're approaching a book, but is there any crossover at all? Or is a magazine thing you got, man, I got 700 words, I got to get down by five o'clock on Thursday. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think uh, as, as Michael would attest, I mean, when you're, when you're, when you're dealing with a, a book length, you know, you, um, you just go deep as, as deep as you can go. And, 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 you know, you're obviously looking for, for the themes as you, as you do with a magazine article, but you've got more room to explore them. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, you can draw on a lot more sources. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was uh, I was I was fortunate that along with my own um, research of magazine newspaper archives, I was able to turn to um, someone a colleague I know at CBC Radio, who kindly maybe, you know, sort of uh, don't mention any names. I won't yeah. mention names, but 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 got me access to a, a number of radio interviews that Gordon Lightfoot did with the CBC over the years, and you know. So I, I could basically expand on the depth of my research. And, you know, I was trying to make this um, biography as, as full and complete, fully completely, <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a portrait of, of, of him and his career as I could. And, and aside from the hours upon hours upon hours of interviews I did with Gordon Lightfoot, which I should tell you was probably the biggest challenge is because he's not a <clears> – <throat> He's never been forthcoming. Right. He's always been a reticent uh, guy who plays his cards close to his chest. 
And, you know, it was really kind of like pulling teeth, to use that old expression. You just sent his wife, your wife to go interview him. Just give her the question. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> well, you like talking actually, to women, yeah. Well, <laughs> certainly in his drinking days. Yeah. I don't know about today. but We're going to leave that there. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. I'm in conversation with Michael Barkley. His new book is called The Never-Ending Present. And it's all about the tragically hip. And then the self-explanatory Lightfoot by Nicholas Jennings. Uh, you can see both Michael and Nicholas in conversation at Word on the Street on Sunday in Toronto. Uh, and uh, they'll discuss the the connection of these two musical Canadian giants. Stay with us. Welcome back. In studio, we have the authors of two books. Michael Barclay is here. His book, The Never-Ending Present, places the tragically hip within the cultural and national shifts of Canadian consciousness over the last 30 years. We have to figure out what that means a little bit later on. <laughs> I was reading from a press release. <laughs> and Nicholas Jennings' book, Lightfoot, uh, both in stores right now. Lightfoot comes out on paperback very soon. Yes, in October. In October. It'll fit nicely into your backpack in paperback. Absolutely. Makes a perfect Christmas present. It, sh- it sure will. And, uh, and that, of course, is all about the Canadian legend, Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, Nicholas, you've been writing, and well, both of you have been writing about music for a long time, but uh, there was a book that you did on Yorkville. Uh, a number of years ago, and that would have been uh, in and around the time, or you would have been chronicling on the time that Lightfoot was starting. And I, if you don't know Toronto, if you're listening from outside of Ontario, Yorkville was where sort of the folk scene happened. He was a little bit more downtown, though, right? Steel's well, Tavern on yeah, Young that's, Street. That's it was a different kind thing. of thing, right? Yeah, he was. He was a little older than um, some of the other musicians in, in the Toronto scene and in Yorkville at the time. Um, he was over 21. You had to be 21 to play in the bars on Young Street. And That's he was, right. He was down uh, um, at a place called Steele's Tavern, and Ronnie Hawkins discovered him, and Ian and Sylvia discovered him, and um, were taken with his this guy's song, songwriting, especially one of his first ones, Early Morning Rain, which yep. led Ian and Sylvia to hook Lightfoot up with their manager, who was also Bob Dylan's manager, and things kind of got rolling. That's Albert yeah. Grossman, right? Albert and Grossman, so yeah. let's let's talk about what kind of place Steele's Tavern would have been. It's before my time here, but you see photographs of Young Street in those days. If you walk down Young Street now, uh, it is steel and glass. There are remnants of old buildings uh, that have been, you know, well, they're, they're not condos yet, but they will be soon enough. Then you look at pictures from, you know, the 60s, the early 70s, and Young Street was neon and, and glowing and just had this real excitement about it, uh, which is it has been completely stripped away. Steel's Tavern sat kind of in the middle of that it in It was my sandwiched mind. right in between Sam the Record Man and A&A Records. Yeah. And it was uh, run by a, um, a Greek entrepreneur by the name of Basil Steele. And uh, he had a steakhouse on the main floor, which... Richard Burton and Elizabeth yeah, yeah, Taylor yeah. famously visited, <laughs> causing a, a near riot on the street when people got word that uh, these two stars were there. They were, I think one of them was, I think Richard Burton was performing at uh, the O'Keefe Center at the time or something. But anyway, upstairs from the steakhouse was this drinking room. And it was a fa- favorite spot with uh, businessmen and, I guess, you know, Ryerson students who had uh, false ID. But Gordon Lightfoot was, would be in there strumming his guitar and singing his very earliest folk songs in that uh, that drinking room, competing yeah. with the the, the the hockey night in Canada game that was playing over the bar. <laughs> That's funny. I, you know, I, I think back about those days in Toronto and how much music there was 
everywhere. It's all gone now, pretty much. We don't really have a live music scene here anymore. I mean, there there is and there isn't, but the clubs, you know, from where we're sitting right now, 20 years ago, five minutes in any direction, and you could you could have your pick of bands to see. Now you have to poke around a little harder to find them. Right. I think, Michael, I think you'd agree. I mean, the Toronto live music scene is still there. It's, it, it's, it's shifted geographically. It's but shifted. Richard's it's no correct longer. that it used to be all in one central spot. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, you're you're referring to the Queen Street scene. In, yeah, in the, the Beverly Tavern, yeah. places like that, that, yeah. you know, were, were just, I mean, where the most exciting music I had ever heard was coming out of. Well, I oh. mean, what I've, I've come to realize is that it's always about rent um, and <laughs> real right. estate. So, I mean, Queen Street then was affordable, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and so was Yorkville, and I guess even Young Street back then, although, you know, they, they could afford higher... Higher rents because they they were they were serving liquor and there was a steakhouse underneath. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, I, I think Michael's right. It's just dispersed. I mean, right. it's not as concentrated as it once was. I saw a band at a movie theater. First time ever for me. The New I Yorker? Think. Uh, no, no. This was just like last night. I oh. went to see a band called the Dirty Nils playing at the Royal, Royal Theater in, in Toronto. Yep. I saw the Sadies uh, there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's it's an interesting thing. It was not, I don't think, an ideal place to see a band, but it was exciting. Yep. The place was packed. Yep. You know, so When I was growing up in Don Mills, there was the local Odeon Cinema. Did this uh, the the manager of the cinema had this this idea? Well, to get kids to come in and watch the Saturday matinees, let's put bands on the stage <laughs> in between the movies. It worked. I mean, yeah. the Ugly wow. Ducklings played wow. in my local cinema. Wow. You know, all these different bands. Wow. Well, that was the idea here. The band would play, and then yeah. they choose a movie, and they happen to be playing Billy Madison. Right. <laughs> and Michael, <laughs> let's talk then a little bit about the early moments, the the the, the founding of the Tragically Hip. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the Steel's Taverns, all that stuff, long gone by the time they were coming around. It was a much different scene, and they started in a much different place. Well, they started in Kingston, Ontario, and uh, started playing a lot of campus pubs on, around Queens. Um, I was told that they actually played anywhere that would have them, and, and Kingston fell in love with them so much that places that had never had live music before and have never had it since would have the Tragically Hip come and play in, like, the window of a restaurant, and then, you know, uh, it would be dinner time, and uh, these people would be finishing their dinner, and then this band would roll in and put their amps on top of tables, and then, you know, at 9 o'clock sharp, like, 100 Queen students would flood in and stand between the tables <laughs> waiting for their band to start. Um, but they really found their home in a place called the Lakeview Manor uh, in Kingston, which was a legendary place, um, no longer there, of course, but uh, had been there for, I think, at least 100 years. Um, and it was uh, primarily a strip club by day, uh, and they would have bands at night. And the funny thing about the Lakeview Manor was that uh, everybody went there, and not just during the day. Yeah. Certain clientele went there during the day, but there'd be different rooms. Like I was told, you know, families would go out for dinner there. Uh, obviously, again, not in the, the not burlesque in the, area, yeah. but uh, it was just a place everybody went. And this actually is a great metaphor for the appeal of the Tragically Hip, is that um, uh, uh, Steve Jordan of the Players Music Prize told me uh, that he, uh, Lakeview Manor was the only place that he saw, you know, uh, conservatives and liberals and NDPs right. and like uh, <laughs> prison workers and cops and university yeah. students and like everybody just went here, everybody got along and everybody was super excited. So they're playing this room and it was the same kind of room where, you know, Doug and the Slugs would come play or yeah. or the band Toronto or or early Colin James. Or, and The Headpins, bands like headpins, that probably, yeah. Yep, don't make you feel. And yeah. so they, uh, and they kind of became like a house band there. They would play there all the time. Um, and some of them met their spouses there and uh, yeah, it was a real hub. And I think that gave them the confidence and the, um, 
kind of the the notion of pleasing everybody. Mm-hmm. So they're very popular. Then they came to Toronto and they would play this place called the Hotel Isabella, yeah. which is still there. Uh, not a live music venue. Not far from where I live. Uh, but far from anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, well, it, <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's stuck and uh, not stuck, but it, it was a place that was a destination because there were no other clubs around it, and yeah. and it was small and it was kind of out of the way. Yeah, yeah. And so once they signed on to management with Alan Gregg and Jake Gold, they booked them in there once a month, and uh, you know initially they'd bust people down from Kingston to help pack it out, uh. and then within a couple months there were lineups out the door. And, We'll pick up the story on the other side of the break. I'm speaking with Michael Barkley. The never-ending present is his book on the tragically hip, and Lightfoot is the new book by Nicholas Jennings, soon out in paperback. Stay with us. If you're a fan of Canadian music, there's two books you'll want to be picking up. Michael Barkley has written a book on the tragically hip. It's called The Never-Ending Present. Lightfoot is Nicholas Jennings' new book, uh, soon out in paperback. And it is, of course, all about Gordon Lightfoot. And we talked about Gordon Lightfoot in uh, Steele's Tavern. Ian and Sylvia come along, say, this guy's amazing. Gets introduced to Bob Dylan's manager. And this was still at that phase in Canadian music, uh, which, I mean, we're, (laughs) I think, sort of still in. But you had to leave to become popular. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, he and, it signed and, to Bob Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, who was probably based out of Woodstock, New York at the time, right? He, was, uh, he had a downtown New York right. address, but he eventually moved to Woodstock, yeah. But but Albert Grossman was the power broker. Um, if anyone saw the movie Inside Lewin Davis, that really sort of captures yep. the, the, the scene in Greenwich Village and, and there's a character that's very much modeled after Albert Grossman who really, you know, could make or break a career. And, you know, so the, the very first Canadian stars, you know, were Ian and Sylvia and mm-hmm. they did um, move down to the, the States. I mean, they kept a home here, but they really based themselves out of New York at Albert Grossman's insistence. Yeah. Lightfoot was never comfortable with the idea of leaving his home and leaving Canada uh, and he resisted um, a, a lot of urging and, and uh, insistence of, of different industry people. And he's kind of the only one, too, to risk the urge for going, as Joni would say. Yeah, yeah. And uh, of that generation, for sure, Michael. I mean, because, uh, you know, and, you know, others have, like, I, 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 you know, over the years I've interviewed, like you have, Michael, people like uh, Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler Mm -hmm. and that generation of Blue Rodeo and Cowboy Junkies and so on. They they all refer to how, hey, Gordon Lightfoot never had to leave. Why do Mm -hmm. we have to leave, you know? Mm -hmm. And, of course, by the time they came along, it was much easier to you know, build a career from Canada. Guess it, who and Rush would be later ones. But yeah. but certainly yeah. I think Gordon Lightfoot was someone everybody looked up to saying, no, you can't actually stay here and let the world come to you and go to the world as you see fit. Of course, it could be argued that... That Light, he was Light, having massive hits yeah, anyway. Light, Lightfoot so, could yeah. afford to stay because <laughs> yeah. he, you know, yeah. I mean, as soon as, um, you know, the thing that Albert Grossman did that really helped Lightfoot was he placed his songs with mm-hmm. other artists. Right. You know, so Peter, Paul and Mary and Judy Collins and, you know... Um, country singers like Marty Robbins and, you know, Bob Dylan himself mm-hmm. um, all covered Lightfoot songs and, you know, made Lightfoot fabulously wealthy. Before, um, before his first record even. Yeah, before his first record, exactly, Michael. And, and you know, the, the Bob Dylan, the, my mention of Bob Dylan, you know, brings to mind that really that's one of the, the themes I pursued in the book. Um, Dylan sort of weaves in and out of Lightfoot's whole storyline. And I, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's a legitimate theme because 
they were associated through Albert Grossman right from the get-go, and they were, you know, they admired each other as songwriters. I mean, D Dylan w was a fan of Lightfoot songs and remained so through, you know, through the, the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Well, he says that uh, Sundown and If You Could Read My Mind are among his favorite songs, uh, his li favorite Lightfoot songs, and then he says, I can't think of any that I don't like. Yeah, no, he's, he, I mean, Light, Lightfoot being, you know, sort of typically modest Gordon, um, always says, well, yes, Bob's been very kind to me, you know, but, <laughs> but no, the fact is they, they are, you know, they are almost equals. I don't think there is a songwriter who, who can quite sort of, um, compete with, with, uh, with Dylan's, um, you know, he's just so prolific. And, and continues to be so. And yeah. continues to be so. But I, I think that, that Lightfoot certainly within Canada came very close. I mean, he, he was, uh, driven to, uh, to create songs, and he really um, put his mind to it. I mean, he, he, he was so meticulous in terms of his work ethic and uh, studying songwriting. And he studied Dylan's songwriting, but he also studied a lot of other songwriters as well. And, uh, you know, he went through different phases where, you know, he was, you know, he was in, before he found folk music, he was, he was basically writing pop songs, yeah. and, you, know, you know, Nashville country tunes, and, you know, he was trying everything. You know, he even had his little stint as a square dancer on CBC. <laughs> but, you know, he, he was trying everything to try and make a go of it. You know, uh, he always, already had a young family. And so he, there was also the, the economic, and you know, motivation as well that he had to keep, keep um, everyone fed. That is a incentive. But, you know, when he found his, his, uh, his, his, his metier, which really was folk or folk country, uh, there was no stopping him. I mean, he really, uh, he really excelled and, and it was just song after song. I mean, I, interestingly, one of the things I did research-wise is I went into the Library of Congress online, thank goodness, and, uh, and uh, those, those, uh, those archives in the Library of Congress were fascinating because it shows every time he wrote a song, and he, what, what Gordon Lightfoot would do is he would, uh, he would write out the, 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 the song, both lyrics and music, on parchment paper, and he would make a copy and he would send it to the Library of Congress to, to register copy his copyright. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so there are tons and tons of Lightfoot songs you can find in the Library of Congress that he never even recorded, you know, or that, that recordings can't be found. I mean, he probably yeah. recorded them, mm -hmm. and he's got, got them hidden in his vault knowing gourd. <laughs> but, you know, it's just interesting to see just how, um, you know, how workmanlike he was. Mm -hmm. It just sort of like, you know, staying, keeping his nose to the grindstone, as he would say. Well, I, I think that is something that maybe it's a Canadian trait. Maybe the you know we are we are hardwired for for that kind of effort because the tragically hip, Michael, were also someone who worked the road, uh, like like few other bands. Maybe Teenage Head toured the country more times than the tragically hip, but I'm not sure. Stomp and Tom, yeah, Stomp and Tom, <laughs> maybe, yeah. Uh, and there's somewhere between the Stomp and Tom and Teenage Head. Um, I, I'm just thinking about uh, about the direct relationship about with with Lightfoot though is that uh, Downey himself said that uh, th he did an interview an on stage interview with Lightfoot um, moderated by Laurie Brown I forget what occasion it was for do you know it it was um, the uh, it was a SoCan event was it yeah, yeah. I, I was in the audience it was held at the North York Center for Performing right. Arts so and and one of the things that Downey uh, said to Lightfoot's face was, he said, I think of your economy and austerity every time I put pen to paper. Wow. 
like your your ability to distill things down to a few central images and everything else. Like his, he, he revered Lightfoot's uh, writing. Um, he said, you know, sundown, he remembers hearing it at the age of 10 in, in like the car with his family and just being stricken. And he said, that's a dangerous song. Like that's Because it's a really dark song, you know, and it's got a peppy little melody and yeah, people, it it's easy to kind of not understand what it's about. But um, but there's a lot going on in that song. And I think Donnie recognized that as a 10-year-old boy. And Black Day in July, songs like that that are yeah. so evocative. Black Day in July, Gord Sinclair the, tragically wrote a history paper on university. He right? was a history wow. student at Queen's University. So there's, and then. And then they record, recorded a cover of it. Uh, yes, they did. And um, when they, when after the first record came out, they played a lot of covers early on when they were starting out, a lot of um, uh, 60s garage rock, British invasion stuff. But um, they, uh, but once they put out an original record, they never played covers, mm-hmm. ever. It was like, they might sing little snippets of things yeah. in the songs. Uh, so the first cover I can think of them doing was in 1993 on the Another Roadside Attraction tour, and they covered, Nick? I don't know. Sunny Side of Life. Wow. Summer Side Sorry, of Summer Life. Side of Life. Oh, well, that's, that's actually one of my favorite Lightfoot songs. Well, there you go. You know, and I, and I didn't know that. And I must have missed it because I read your book very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't jump out at you, that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, there were other Gord references, yeah. uh, Lightfoot references yeah. in your book that did jump out. Lots, lots of Gord references. Yeah, yeah. yeah Fewer yeah, yeah. Lightfoot ones. Than, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not very many Pinsent or, uh, or yeah. Sinclair. That's yeah. right. Well, it's <laughs> different Sinclair. <laughs> Too many Gords. We're going to come back after this quick break uh, and continue the conversation. I'm in conversation with Michael Barkley. His book, The Never-Ending Present, uh, is all about the tragically hip. And you will be on tour uh, going from Halifax to Vancouver and then up and down. You'll be all over the place. All over the place. Montreal, Charlottetown, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, National Music Center in Calgary. And, so, and, and talking about the, the book and the Talking about the book. Hip? Yep. Wow. Yep. That's exciting. Yeah. So there's so, a Facebook page for the book and you can find all the dates there. Barclay great. Hip book. So you'll be able to uh, uh, see Michael there and, and visit with him. We're also talking about Lightfoot by Nicholas Jennings. Stay with us. There's lots more when we come back. Welcome back. In studio, my guests are Michael Barkley. His book is called The Never-Ending Present, all about the tragically hip. And you can see Michael in October. Uh, he'll be everywhere. You're doing like a tragically hip tour across the country where you go to every city in the country, east to west and north to south, uh, talking about the book, talking about the tragically hip. Uh, you can go to Facebook and what's the, the page? Uh, Barkley Hip Book. Barkley Hip yeah. Book. Go there and you'll see uh, a date close to you and go see Michael talk about that. Lightfoot by Nicholas Jennings, all about Gordon Lightfoot. We are in the last segment of the show. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your your moments that you think made your the people individually that you're writing about icons. And and for me, I'll st- and Michael, I'll start with you. The 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 final show, the tragically final show, for me was unbelievably moving. And I will, in full transparency, I was never the biggest tragically hip fan. I saw them any number of times, but you know, uh, unlike, uh, most Canadians, I don't watch hockey and I'm, and I, I know. And Me I, too. <laughs> and Are I we was, still Canadian? We, uh, well, see, you know, my parents were American, so maybe, I don't know, but oh. yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hanging on to my Canadianisms, but it, it, and, and, and I wasn't, but I, I, I knew the songs and I knew of them certainly. And I'd met Gordon a number of times in the band, but near the end of the concert, and he has a moment in which he is screaming and there is a, a primal thing that happened in that moment that I was watching it that I thought this may be one of the great rock and roll moments that I've ever seen. You're seeing a guy who knows that this is it 
mm-hmm. confronting that this is it mm-hmm. on stage mm-hmm. and doing it in a joyful but poignant but sad way. Man, I mean, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I would also say, I think everything you say is true, and I would also say that he did that at 15 other times that month. Uh, or I forget the exact yeah. number of dates now, but um, uh, I that's a fascinating moment, and I write about that quite a bit in the book because um, there was a clip of him doing that song. The song we're talking about is Grace 2. Yeah. Now, a lot of people had not seen the hip in years, and this song ends, it's a song where it's unclear exactly what is happening. There's a lot of interpretations as to what the narrative of the song is. But something bad is going down in the song. Some people think it's about a contract hit or something and uh, a contract killer. Um, but anyway, the, the last three words of the song are him, here, now. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's screaming. He's saying, him, here, now, which of course takes on much more resonance mm-hmm. in a moment like this. Yeah. Um, now, he had always screamed those lines for years because it is kind of an emotional peak, uh, naturally, in that song. Um, and... Uh, and I talked to this really interesting guy in Calgary, Patrick Finn, is a professor there of, of drama. And uh, he said, um, you know, that's, uh, there's a thing he does with actors. If you are working on a scene that is about emotional trauma, and if you are someone who has had emotional trauma in your life, this could be if you've lost a loved one to suicide, for example, and you're in a play about suicide. Um, you it's know, method acting. It's me- well, it's like you you are accessing your pain in that performance. But here's the thing. You, you know that moment is coming and you have to know how to get out of it. Because if you don't know how to get out of it, you're going to break down on stage. Um, Gord Downey is nothing if not a professional and in everything he ever did. And you watch that moment and uh, either the one in Kingston or the one in Toronto went, that went viral. And he's clearly having a moment. And uh, so what this professor said is, you know, some nights you're kind of feeling it. Some nights you're really feeling it. Some nights, holy cow, are you ever yeah. feeling it? But again, you got to know how to get out of that. And you watch those Downey performances. And at the end of it, he is screaming in time in the music. He's also clearly, something is happening personally to him. Um, there are other nights, the one in Toronto, he seems to be like looking at the audience and kind of almost mimicking their sadness. Like he's doing a, this kind of uh, clowning thing, clowning in the dramatic, yeah, uh, yeah. professional dramatic sense, not joking around. Um, and, uh, but he, uh, but he, he's screaming in time with the music and then he's doing this dance where he seems a bit out of control while the band winds down the song, does a big finish. And as it's clear, they're about to hit the last note. He walks to the backstage, picks up the microphone stand, brings it back to the front, boom, drops it on the last beat. And in a totally clear voice says, thank you very much. Wow. And what a professional. Yeah. And it's like, he's clearly gone through something. We have all gone through this incredible thing. And yet he knows he's a showman. He knows where he is. He knows what he's doing. Um, and, and that's the show. Nicholas, for you in Gordon Lightfoot's career, is there, is there a a, a moment that you can pinpoint that is memorable? It's hard to pinpoint a moment, Richard, but, um, you know, I think of, it's funny, I'm just flashing on Gordon Gordon Lightfoot going to Kingston Mm. under the radar, not publicized to perform at Kingston Penitentiary Mm. for the inmates. I was in 1969 and, uh, you know, sort of a little bit like Johnny Cash in Folsom Prison. Was that 68 or when was Johnny Cash thing? Was it just a year or two earlier? Just a year earlier. Yeah, like 67 probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, so, you know, that's to me is a really cool and 
fascinating sort of moment in, in Gordon Lightfoot's performing career that he chose to do that. He, you know, he, he wanted to do that and he didn't use it as a publicity stunt right. at all. Didn't make a live album. Uh, didn't make yeah, a live album. Right. No, no, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I think as well, and I mentioned this in the book that when Lightfoot, because he, he toured Europe quite a bit in the 70s and he appeared on the BBC and people... People who want to check out Gordon Lightfoot or who love Lightfoot should go to YouTube and look for Gordon Lightfoot at the BBC. It is some of the most fantastic footage you'll ever see of Gordon Lightfoot singing. I mean, he's in his prime and he's in in an intimate studio, beautifully filmed and the audio is amazing and he's he's with uh, Red Shea and... and, uh, and and his and his bass player Rick Haynes and it's it's just extraordinary footage so so that comes to mind. Um, I also think of I opened the book with the story of uh, Bob Dylan coming to Toronto in December seventy five uh, on his Rolling Thunder mm-hmm. review tour and inviting Gordon to come very last minute yeah, inviting yeah. Gordon to come and join the 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 circus on stage at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto and. Uh, I mean that that was a by all accounts I wasn't lucky enough to have been there but by all accounts that was a pretty extraordinary sort of homecoming hero moment like you know um the, Well this tour was really kind of loose it was not a review, really, but the the band members, the, the band got bigger every yeah, place they, they, they went. Pick, he, Dylan was picking up. Um, and Joey Mitchell was there for a few yeah, days. yeah. And weren't right. there random like wasn't Mick Ronson one of the guitar yes, players he was. and yeah. things? So yes, he was. you know, people that you would not expect to be playing with Bob Dylan would end up on stage. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. And and the reason I I actually opened the book with uh, with that that scene because it just it it brought. Dylan, who, who who remained, you know, became a, a regular character in my book, as if you like, and uh, sort of Dylan and Lightfoot together right from the from yeah. the beginning of the book. But you know, it's obviously just a very significant moment in rock history that tour. Um, but all of that is to say, I think if, if I were to pinpoint one thing that's real was really significant for Gordon Lightfoot, it's something that I think that everyone, every Canadian knows, which is, you know, the Canadian Railroad trilogy. Yeah. And the fact that he performed that on on the CBC on the first day of Canada's centennial in 1967. Hmm. And, you know, I think most people know that Gordon Lightfoot was commissioned by the CBC Mm -hmm. to write that song. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's it's sort of um, a pivotal moment for him because not only did that song become hugely successful and it's one of his, you know, his his standards, um, but it, it really helped Canada um, come of age mm-hmm. in its centennial year. And I think it, 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 it gave people a lot of national pride. And of course, I think it inspired a lot of other songwriters, maybe Gord Downey included, to, to, to feel good about writing about where we're from. Well, Another interesting thing. thing about that song, though, is that, and I learned this from your book, is that he also revised it. Yes. Was it in the 80s or 90s? Um. Well, he's revised a couple of songs. Well, I mean, in terms of the, the Terra Nullis kind of notion of like, I forget the line in the song, but that the, there was nobody in these woods when we built the tracks. Right. And he's yes. like, uh, wait a minute, that's yeah. historically wrong. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and you see, that's the thing about Lightfoot is he's, yeah. he's persnickety about accuracy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he has done that with Wreck of the Emma Fitzgerald as well. Right, yes. Um, and, and other songs, you know, and there's some songs that he's now actually cons- that d- considers off limits. He won't sing, mm-hmm. you know, For Love and Me anymore because right. he 
thinks it's a it's it's um, machismo. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's is that right? Yeah, yeah. and and so he's not precious about his old material. Then no, I mean, he, you know, he, he'll give the people what they want. He'll mm-hmm. always play mm-hmm. all the hits from all eras of his career. But there are certain songs he's just withdrawn entirely, like for Love and Me. But but in terms of Canadian identity, I, that's what I find like, especially when we're talking about Downey and Secret Path and Indigenous uh, history. Um, the fact that he Lightfoot acknowledged, like, I can't I can't just write the song about a land where nobody was. I have yeah. to, like, acknowledge And like, like Down, Downey, um, Lightfoot um, became very involved with mm-hmm. um, Indigenous issues and, and played a lot of benefits, mm-hmm. um, you know, through the through the 80s, I think, especially, mm-hmm. um, to raise money, you know, and he was he was involved in the Stein Valley mm-hmm. and, and, right. uh, and other other yeah. uh, fights. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, they, they both shared that mm-hmm. um, sympathy. A- another connection I'm just thinking, too, is that you're talking about his band, Red Shea, and I'm sorry, the bassist is... Rick Haynes. Rick Haynes. And that was another thing that Downey said at that summit <laughs> they had together was uh, that he always admired that Gord had his band. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, with the Tragically Hip, you have five guys who are together for 30 years. And the same band you hear on the very first record is the same five people who played the last show and nobody ever left. Right. And that, I can only think of you 2 yeah. and Radiohead and ZZ Top. Nobody else. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I, like, I, I, I play this kind of bar game with yeah. my friends on Facebook. It's like, okay, can you name any other band? More than 30 years, a million selling band. So you have to have like a level yeah, of success yeah. to like make it mean something. Yeah. Um, and those are the only three anybody could come up with. Yeah. You know, even Rush, different drummer, first record, like, That's you right. know, Aerosmith, people come and go. And, um, and, you know, in Lightfoot's case, his bassist, Rick Haynes, is still with him. You yeah. know, it's over 50 years. It's like longer than any of his marriages. <laughs> 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 hey, we have to leave it on that. Now, if you want to hear more of this conversation between Michael Barkley and uh, Nicholas Jennings, uh, each talking about their books. Michael's book is The Never-Ending Present, all about the tragically hip. Uh, and, of course, Lightfoot by Nicholas Jennings. Uh, check out Sunday, 2.15 in Toronto. at Word on the Street in Toronto. Uh, there's lots of Word on the Street stuff happening all across the country. But if you're in Toronto, Uh, check it out because this is a fascinating conversation about two bands or about two musical acts uh, that really have come to define Canada in many ways. Uh, Gentlemen, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Richard. Uh, My thanks to you for listening and my thanks to Nick Mariano on the board. We'll talk to you again next week.